Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Howdy, folks. Hi, Joe. And Andy Leonetti. Hey, guys. So, how's everybody doing? I went out to eat for the first time on Friday. Oh, wow. It, inside, it was fantastic. Yeah, I hung out at a brewery over the weekend outside, and that was fantastic as well. Yeah, I was just yeah. outside all weekend, so. Yeah, no. we have to enjoy it when we can here in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> I had I had beers off the tap. I had cheese curds fresh out of the fryer. All right. It was, it was <laughs> everything I had been waiting for. Yep. <laughs> And now you're ready for the state fair, it sounds like. I am I am I am definitely ready for the state fair. <laughs> I'm just ready to crowd in with a bunch of people. Oh man. I don't I don't know if I'm ready. Well I guess I've got a couple months to get it figured out. I'm getting on I'm getting on a plane on Thursday. Oh yeah. So, you know, it's all happening. Yep. Andy's back. I'm back. Yeah, I'm back, baby. <laughs> I guess. Well, our, our topic today is much more serious than our excitement about cheese curds and uh, traveling out of our homes, even. Uh, today, we're covering opioids, specifically lawsuits filed by local governments against the companies that they allege bombarded their communities with highly addictive substances. People have probably heard about the lawsuits against Johnson & Johnson and Purdue Pharma, but... Something unprecedented is going on in West Virginia as we speak. We've got an opioid lawsuit that actually made it to trial. Ooh, it's pretty wild. <laughs> it is. After after seeing so many headlines about settlements and, you know, literally thousands of lawsuits um, coming in and out all around this issue. Not only settlements, but rejections of settlements yeah. and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, a little bit of background and then we'll get into... Uh, specifically what's going on in West Virginia, and we'll touch on multi-district litigation as well, another super fun legal topic uh, <laughs> that Joe and I will try to explain as best we can. <laughs> yeah, a topic that, that to this day confuses me. <laughs> it is weird. It's a weird animal that is unique to the U.S. legal system. If you're listening and you're worried, don't worry. We will not go in depth. Oh, God, no. This is not one of those <laughs> podcasts that you try to play before bed to go to sleep. This is, uh, <laughs> we're just going to we're just going <laughs> to summarize the highlights because, um, yeah, this is a complex and uh, it, it's an interesting topic, but mm-hmm. only if you're really into the law. So stick with us, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> We'll try to keep it interesting. So, yeah, just to go back a little bit, but not too far, because to kind of go through the entire timeline of when it started to actually become apparent that opiates such as fentanyl and oxycodone and related substances were addictive and deadly, they would get extremely complicated. But just um, we'll start with kind of the courtroom wranglings going back to August 2019, which on this subject is really a lifetime ago. That was when a state judge, a state judge in Oklahoma hit Johnson and Johnson with a $572 million fine in that state's public nuisance lawsuit against the drug maker. Don't forget that despite everyone being all cool with Johnson and Johnson for coming up with a <laughs> a sleek COVID COVID-19 vaccine, um, <laughs> They've, they've done a lot of other things, too. Yeah. And so that was the first major verdict 
in an opioid trial. Uh, the judge later reduced that verdict to $465 million due to what he called a miscalculation. Uh, he said that the $465 million verdict is essentially the one-year mitigation costs for the state of Oklahoma to kind of address the effects of the pandemic. Oklahoma was seeking billions and billions of dollars. Uh, they were wanting 20 years worth of money. Johnson & Johnson is still appealing that case, so no money has been paid. Teva and Purdue Pharma also settled. The infamous Purdue Pharma uh, settled with the state of Oklahoma for about $350 million. Then in October 2019, averting what would have been the first federal trial, uh, Cuyahoga and Summit Counties in Ohio agreed to a $260 million settlement with the distributors Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, along with drug maker Teva, through a combination of money and actual drugs to be used for treating opioid dependency. Now, that one was noteworthy because those counties were part of this massive web of what is more now than 2,000 state, county, local, and tribal uh, government lawsuits that are consolidated in multi-district litigation in the Northern District of Ohio. And so by Cuyahoga and Summit County settling, what that does is it puts a little more pressure on the other plaintiffs because that diminishes the aggregate total amount that these drug distribution companies uh, will be able to pay. And then in February of this year, McKinsey, my favorite, uh, everything everything that's wrong with 21st century living can pretty much be traced to <laughs> McKinsey and Company, and their quote and their and their excellent uh, consulting services. Um, they agreed to pay 573 million dollar settlement with 47 states to settle claims that, in their infinite genius as consultants, they advise Purdue Pharma and other drug makers to aggressively market opioid painkillers. So, good job. I am glad Pete <laughs> Buttigieg is not president. Um, Thank you for that completely objective summary. Just, just the facts. That's what we You can always count on you do. to not editorialize. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to back up a little bit because you mentioned the, the multi-district litigation and this feels like as good a time as any to touch on what exactly that is. So like we mentioned earlier, we've got thousands of lawsuits that have been filed against drug manufacturers and distributors and pharmacies too. Yeah. Pretty much everybody in the drug supply chain has been sued because of the opioid crisis. So running in the background of all this is the national prescription opiate litigation, which is the name they gave to this massive multi-district federal case that connects all the, these cases together. And Joe, feel free to chime in if I mess any of this up. I think I've got my head wrapped around what multi-district litigation is. I'm ready to pounce, Laura. <laughs> yeah, as always. <laughs> I can always count on you to hold me accountable. Yeah, multi-district litigation, or MDL, is a special legal procedure at the federal level that was designed to smooth out this process of litigating really complex cases. It dates back to the 1960s when the federal judiciary just got completely walloped. And that's I'm going with the technical term on that <laughs> uh, by cases in that came from an antitrust scandal in the electrical equipment industry. So all of a sudden, like 2000 cases were filed in 36 different federal judicial districts, all pretty much 
asking the same question. So Earl Warren, who was chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, created a committee to manage all these cases, and the methods that they came up with eventually became the multi-district litigation statute, which is what this current one is operating under now. So basically, when you have a whole bunch of federal cases that present pretty much the same questions of fact, like these opioid cases, a chunk of them or all of them end up getting transferred to one district to do any pretrial proceedings. So it streamlines things by having, instead of a hundred or a thousand different depositions where you're asking the same suit, the same questions, everybody just works off of the same one. And they have a central sort of hub for documents. And along the way, a lot of the cases will settle or be terminated. But then if they reach the trial stage, they get transferred back to their original district. So we hear about Ohio a lot in this case because the hub for the opiate litigation is the Northern District of Ohio. Yes. And now this case in West Virginia started off there in this multi-district thing. And then once it got to the point where they said, okay, we're going to actually take this thing to trial, got transferred back to the federal court in West Virginia. Okay. Now I'm going to stop you there and ask a question. (laughs) Could you explain, (laughs) could one of you explain the difference to me between multi-district litigation and class and a class action lawsuit? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's actually one of the things that I was going to bring up because you hear MDL and you hear multiple states, you know, multiple defendants, multiple plaintiffs. Of course, this is a class action, but no, they're actually two different things. A multi-district lit- litigation has lots of different lawsuits involved, whereas a class action is one lawsuit that represents a class of people. And here we have a lot of different plaintiffs, and they're going to remain different plaintiffs. As Laura was talking about, you know, like in West Virginia, and now we're having the Bellwether trial there. That's its own lawsuit and its own trial. And there will be other plaintiffs in other lawsuits who could potentially have their own trial. So multi-district litigation is not a class action. It's basically cases that have been taken together briefly for certain stages of of the litigation process. Okay. Because that, well, I know that, yeah, that that some of these cases involve different defendants even because some cases are against CVS and Walgreens and others are against Mm -hmm. distributors like McKesson and Cardinal. A lot of them have a much longer list than the ones that you see. Yeah. Like the full list is usually longer than what you see in like a news story. The other thing that makes this extra confusing is that uh, judge Polster, the district judge who's overseeing the multi-district opioid litigation approved a plan to create something that, as far as I know, is completely new to the federal judiciary. They created a a negotiation class where lawyers for a group of about 49 different local government plaintiffs can work to try to reach a settlement deal on behalf of every city and county in the United States unless they explicitly opt out. So if they reach a deal with one of these pharmaceutical companies, the entire negotiation class can vote on whether or not they want to take it, which is also different from a class action because in a class action, you have one class representative who decides whether they want to take the deal, where in this situation, everybody has a vote. So there's there's a lot going on here. <laughs> yeah. Over the years, as I've been reading about this case, I would just say Judge Dan Polster seems like he's getting extremely impatient. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he might have to work on that because this is not going away anytime soon. So No, absolutely not. <laughs> so in this case, then, everyone would have a say in whether to accept the settlement or go back to going it alone. Right. Yeah, so basically how it works in, in MDL, and this is just kind of a cursory explanation, is that... The hub the, where it's at, you know, they do the pre-trial negotiations and then certain lawsuits are selected to go to trial uh, in their respective jurisdictions. Uh, there could be one, there could be a couple different ones, and that's what happened in this case. And so what we're seeing now in West Virginia is one of those lawsuits going to trial. And this helps everyone involved kind of get a feel for how juries are going to respond to each side's arguments and it can impact settlement negotiations whether people want to go to trial whether or not so that's why they call it a bellwether is because each side is kind of testing out the waters so to speak okay. and so mm -hmm. you know it's an important case it's not the be-all end-all you know it's not like the litigation is going to stop after this trial concludes uh, or reaches a settlement. Uh, but it is a good good indication of what each side can expect from, from settlements. So I have a fun fact. Do you guys know where the term bellwether comes from? No, other than it gets used way too much every four years on <laughs> TV news. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that, that is true. So my fun fact of the day is that it comes from sheep herding. Apparently when you have at least they used to back in the day, you'd have a flock of sheep and whatever sheep was at the front would have a bell on its neck. And it was kind of leading the rest of them to wherever it is they were going. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so there we go. Moving on. <laughs> That's my... I did. I had another question, though. I had a legit question. So does the <laughs> presiding judge in the MDL decide which cases get to be like a bellwether case, like what Laura's about to talk about? in West Virginia. So what happens is that there's a judicial panel on multi-district litigation. So this is seven circuit and district judges. They're designated by the chief justice. And what happens is once the case is transferred back to its original district, there is a transferee judge who is overseeing the proceedings. And the transferee judge is responsible for selecting the individual suits. So that was a long way of saying yes to your question, Andy. Yes, the judge does decide. Okay. <laughs> Specifically, though, Laura, what is going down in West Virginia right now? Yeah, so they're starting week three of trial in West Virginia. Um, so the city of Huntington and then Cabell County have gone forward with their lawsuit against um, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, and Cardinal Health names that come up again and again and that we've already mentioned a couple of times. And yeah, they're suing these three distributors for the just flood of opioids that came into West Virginia. A lot of people probably know that West Virginia was hit really hard by the opioid crisis and the city of Huntington especially so. They have some of the highest death rates due to drug overdose and a lot of it is because of opioids. And the lawsuit alleges that manufacturers and these three distributors engineered this dramatic shift in how and when opioids were just were prescribed as well as failing to maintain the controls that they're supposed to have over the distribution of prescription opioids. 
John Oliver actually has a really good segment on this. <laughs> if you want to check it out, I'm sure we could link it if we wanted to. Um, but basically the, the distributors are supposed to have controls in place to kind of have a red flag go up if a particular pharmacy or drugstore or what, you know, whoever is ordering way too many opioids or other uh, more addictive substances. But it seems that they didn't do a great job of that. <laughs> um, because they like money? <laughs> basically, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, yeah, you hear stories about towns of like 400 people getting, you know, just millions and millions of pills, you know, enough for every man, woman, and child in town to have 7,000 oxycodone pills, which is just insane. And so the the companies in this case are trying to argue that they are too far removed from the actual use or misuse of opioids in order to be held accountable. But the fact that they, it seems, didn't really either have in place or follow the controls that they were supposed to have, I think that's going to be an uphill battle for them. And these are the same, as Andy mentioned earlier, these are the same companies that came to a huge settlement in Ohio, and they made a similar offer to Huntington and Cabell County. It was about $26 billion, or it was part of the $26 billion that they offered to settle all of the opioid lawsuits against them across the country. But lawyers for Huntington and Cabell County said, you know, we would get about 1% of that, and it's not enough to undo the huge amount of damage that's been done to communities in West Virginia. So they're seeking about a billion in damages on their own, and the trial is expected to go until about mid-June. Okay. The them rejecting the settlement, I know other states, while, while Cuyahoga and Summit counties in Ohio did negotiate their own settlement, the attorney general of Ohio rejected the broader mm -hmm. settlement saying that it's, you know, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need. The right. same argument that uh, Oklahoma made in their state lawsuit against J&J &J was mm -hmm. that just we need and deserve more than just one year right. worth of mitigation. If you're talking for rehab mm -hmm. and putting in more effective controls in place and all this stuff is going to cost way more, you know, just, for, mm -hmm. you know, I always like to think about this for reference in the late nineties, uh, the historic tobacco settlement, yeah, $246 billion mm -hmm. over time of which more than a hundred billion has already been paid out right? and they are continuing to pay out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up tobacco because I think it's an interesting comparison, but another interesting comparison is to, asbestos litigation mm -hmm. and the way that these trials are, are shaping up and this litigation is shaping up it's looking a little bit more like uh, asbestos than tobacco as opposed to one big settlement that gets distributed uh, it's looking like we're kind of having a situation where lots of plaintiffs, lots of defendants, this could go on for decades. Mm -hmm. We're talking about large sums of money, but even after how many years of asbestos litigation, there's still, what, you know, $30 billion that yeah. people can get in, in asbestos uh, bankruptcy trusts. And so I could see something similar happening here. So that'll be interesting to keep an eye out for. Mm -hmm. Now, if is so it's kind of the thinking... I'm going to go back to that bellwether terminology here, which is that if Cabell County and Hunting in the city of Huntington prevail in this in this lawsuit, that it might force the the drug distributors, pharmacists, who are pharmacies, 
whoever else to kind of maybe up their settlement offers. It kind of depends on how the case shakes out, because really what it comes down to is this case will be a test of how convincing this argument is, since it's, you know, all of these cases are are following pretty much the same uh, the same argument that these these companies created a public nuisance by allowing prescription drugs to flow into these communities unchecked. Since it's something that hasn't really been tested at trial, there's not really a precedent. So once there is, that's something that whoever wins basically can point to when they're in settlement negotiations. I guess the other question I think maybe some of our listeners might be interested to know is what effect this large multi-district litigation or even an individual trial like what's happening in West Virginia has on, say, individuals or families who are thinking about filing like a personal injury or a wrongful death lawsuit against um, a drug distributor or a pharmacy or, you know, someone else involved in the in the distribution chain there of getting opioids out to the public. A lot of the governments will be using this money to fund public services and whatnot. But if, you know, someone who has been profoundly affected by this crisis, you know, still wants or is interested in taking legal action or whatever, what what should they do? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. If nothing else, you know, it's a good indication of the kind of liability that some of these manufacturers and distributors may be facing. I would only say to you, if you're listening and maybe are interested in pursuing this, is that there is so much litigation going on that probably your best bet is to just reach out to a local lawyer or law firm that typically handles MDL and product liability issues. Fortunately, we know a few good ones here at Fine Law, so I'll include a link <laughs> in the show notes if you're interested. All across the country. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if you're interested and, you know, a lot of people are, unfortunately, this is mm-hmm. a huge problem. So if this is something that's affecting you, then by all means, check out the link in the show notes and, and see what an attorney can do for you. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. I almost did a swear. (laughs) I'm going to not do that.